5, and if we have time, Romans 11. The squeeze continues. Pincer strategy is our interpretive strategy, and we're in the double center now. We have a printout tonight at the information table, which will be helpful because it seems like I breeze through Romans 12, 4 through 8, and so having it in the printed form will give it a little more depth because if you put together the the printed form and sometimes the spoken form, they complement one another and they become a supplement to one another. So that's out there, and I think it's called One Grace, Many Gifts. So let's take a couple moments. Silent preparation. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to stand in awe of our Savior, your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of studying the Scriptures, the Word of Truth. Grant us attentiveness now as we delve into that Word. And grant us a good hope by grace that we may live in this world, and may our lives be characterized as being a reason for hope to others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to keep in mind something from Isaiah. I'm intrigued that this is the 10 days of awe, as we've said in the Jewish calendar. We started on Sunday. The 10 days of awe, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, which is essentially the Jewish New Year. It's followed by 10 days of awe leading to Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And it's, a, it's kind of astounding to me that before even finding this out, I have been focused on the atonement in a way that has, in fact, inspired a kind of new awe And there is a passage in Isaiah 53 that I want you just to be tuned in on in your mind because this is going to apply in strange ways to what I'm about to teach in Romans 5. And it's the testimony of the second Isaiah, a particular theological genius who was a prophet. And he says... We esteemed him or we regarded him as a man afflicted by God. Speaking of the Messiah, and we know that's Jesus on the cross. We regarded him, we considered him as a man or we considered him to be a man afflicted by God. And that was said in a kind of repentance tone in a tone of repentance, because we wrongly viewed him as a man afflicted by God. Instead, he was enduring 
what can only be described as the incomprehensible wages of sin's control of the human race, where it would lead, where it would go, where it would ultimately take humanity, is a fatal kind of disaster that is it's incomprehensible, and he endured it. He endured it for us. So I want you to keep that in mind because a wrong view of the cross is related to a wrong view of affliction and suffering. Tribulation is a word that we're going to find in our study tonight. It's Thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Thlipsis. In the world you'll have it, Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Thlipsis. He guarantees it. And so there is a wrong conception that when someone is going through a particular kind of suffering that involves pain, a direct kind of suffering that involves pain, that somehow they're afflicted by God, punished by God, or chastised by God, and therefore not in fellowship with God. The opposite is true in most cases. It's like those who perceived Jesus as a man afflicted by God and cursed. And Paul said, you can't say by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is cursed. Jesus is Lord is more like it. So the wrong conception of who Jesus is, and if you know Jesus, you're all about him. You say things like, for me, living is Christ. If you know him, you have to be all about him. And that'll gauge whether you know him or if you know him well. For me, living is Christ, said the man who knew Jesus. If you know him, you're all about him. All of you is all about him. It's called occupation with Christ, which isn't a bad term at all. He whose mind is stayed on him is kept in perfect peace. She whose mind is stayed on him, we would say all about him, is kept in perfect peace. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Now, a word regarding structure. I'm taking the double center of Romans, which is two centers, Romans chapters 5 through 8, and Romans chapters 9 through 11, a double center. And I'm interpreting it creatively under this double rubric in Ephesians 2.4. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice, rich in mercy, the abundance of his mercy, and the great love with which he loved us. The next verse is, of course, quite revelatory, but I'm using this as a rubric or a title to structure the rest of Romans. And it may quite, it may go quite rapidly. It may go quite fast. And the treatment of Romans itself, but then what distills from Romans, there'll be a lot more messages probably in the future. And so in this construction in Ephesians 2, 4, Love comes first, even though it's mentioned second, it comes first conceptually and logically. 
Because of God's great love, great love is unrestricted love. Romans 5 through 8 is all about God's unrestricted love. Romans 5, 5, the love of God poured out in our hearts. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Romans 8, 35 to 39, who shall separate us? What shall separate us from the love of God? It's in Christ Jesus. It's all boxed in with love. Romans is boxed in 9 through 11 with mercy. So in Romans and Ephesians 2, 4, which is my interpretive leverage, Because of God's unrestricted love, God's abundant mercy, because of his love, there is his mercy. And abundant mercy here is universal mercy. Great love, that's a kind of a vague adjective, great, I would make unrestricted. Abundant mercy, or the rich mercy, I would make universal mercy. And so the great love is Romans 5 through 8. The abundant mercy of God is Romans 9 through 11. And of course, the dead center to which we're pressing from both flanks is the lamb hidden in the center of the center or the center of the centers of Romans in Romans 8, 31 to 32. Once not a people, 1 Peter 2.10 says, now you are the people of God. The reason? Mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what makes you the people of God? Mercy. And who is the Israel of God? Those upon whom is the mercy of God. Mercy is upon the Israel of God who is such in practice or in reality and in praxis because it consists of all those who walk according to a certain rule as we are beginning to see. And this moves us from Romans to Galatians where we may, may, may go next. Galatians 5, 5 to 6 is the rule. It's a faith working by love in the power of the Spirit. It's a faithfulness working by love. That's the rule by which we walk or conduct ourselves as the Israel of God in 6.15 and 16 of Galatians. Now, look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified on account of the aforementioned faithfulness If this is just left up in the air, it says, therefore, being justified by faith. But it's speaking of the aforementioned faithfulness, which if you look in Romans 4.25, is Christ being handed over for our sins and raised up for our justification. Our justification isn't by our faith, but by his faithfulness. We are justified, therefore, on account of the aforementioned faithfulness. The inferential word un, O-U-N, starts us off, actually links it to what was said before. Our justification is rooted not in our personal faith, but in Messiah's 
personal fidelity, faithfulness to God. So I would translate it this way. Therefore, being justified, and I'm using the word justified, even though rectified is better, only because we're in kind of an arena here about in the Christian theological realms about what justification is, just what is it. Therefore, being justified on account of the aforementioned faithfulness, that is, Messiah Jesus' faithfulness, in which he was willingly handed over for our sins and raised up for our justification. See that in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 4? Let us have peace with God. Now, here's the trick. Let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If it is let us have peace or let us enjoy peace, then this is an exhortation. This is Paul exhorting, encouraging, incentivizing peace among believers there. And I've been back and forth with this for 40 plus years, maybe 45 years studying this passage. Is it an indicative mood? If it's an indicative mood, echo, have, it says, therefore, being justified by Messiah's faithfulness, we have peace with God. But if it's a subjunctive and it's subjunctive and volative, meaning it involves our will, our liberated will. If it's subjunctive, then it means let us go on or let us enjoy peace or let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is an important idea here, and I'm leaning In fact, I'm going to go with it and stand right there that this is what he's saying, that it's a subjunctive, meaning it is appealing to them to enjoy the peace that they have. The justification that's been done to them, as it were, and is being done to them, it goes on to be a process of rectification or setting us right, them and us, is on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ which was a primary subject throughout chapters 1 through 4, the left flank of Romans. So if have, and again, it's the word echo, E-C-H-O, if have here is in the subjunctive mood, then it's an exhortation to enjoy peace with God on the basis of the fidelity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fidelity which justifies all as we will see forward in Romans 5.18. If it's in the indicative mood, which simply states a declaration, we have peace with God on the basis of having been justified, then it's just a declaration of peace. Now, looking throughout Romans and seeing from a little different standpoint now, I'm going with the exhortation, let us have peace, let us enjoy peace. It is ours, but let's enjoy it. Let's experience it together in harmony with others is the idea. In the context of Paul's intent in Romans, which we've been uncovering a little bit through an intentionality analysis of Paul, in the context of Paul's intent in Romans, which we've seen to be a kind of mission of reconciliation between groups in Rome, then this could well be taken as an exhortation to live in harmony 
with each other based on the peace or reconciliation to God that was made by Christ's faithful obedience to the point of enduring the unspeakable death that is the wages or the final harvest of sin. On the basis of his faithful obedience to the extent of enduring the unspeakable death that is the wage or the wages of the final or the final harvest, we could say, of sin. And he endured this death on behalf of and in place of all mankind. Death is the wages, or I like to call it the final harvest of sin, on behalf of and in place of all mankind. Now, even if the indicative mood is insisted upon here for echo, E-C-H-O, even if the indicative mood is insisted upon here, the fact that we have peace with God is a powerful incentive in itself for living in peace with one another. And that's what Paul's after here. Romans 5.1 seems to accord, in fact, with Mark 9.50, where Jesus urged his disciples to live in peace with one another. Live in peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves, he said, which has to do with the sacrifices. It has to do with an orientation to the cross, as we'll explain some other time. And be at peace with one another. Romans 5.1, if it's in the subjunctive, let us go on to have peace or to enjoy peace. Let us enjoy peace with one another. It would accord with or agree with Jesus' words in Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. And therefore, Jesus' words would aptly echo through the apostle to the saints in Rome and to all saints everywhere. Moreover, this also accords with, agrees with, lines up with, and is in sync with the exhortation of Romans 12.18, where Paul writes, as much as possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with all people. The subjunctive mood is a better fit, in my view, right now, at this time, in my interpretive history. The subjunctive mood is a better fit for Romans, the epistle, in toto, in its totality. And I've never really looked at it that way until yesterday and today. The epistle itself can almost be discerned, then, in its entire thrust, all of Romans, to be an exhortation, which is an impartation of incentive an impartation of incentive to be at peace and to be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as he puts it in Ephesians 4, 3. So it's certainly a reality. Now, giving more thought to this, it is certainly a reality that we have peace with God. In fact, that is the reality. That is the reality that we have peace with God, and that peace is Jesus. Jesus is our peace in Ephesians 2.14.
However, we have peace with God not because we're justified. If you think about this now, think about it. We have peace with God not because we are justified, but because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not charging their sins to them. We have peace with God because God made that peace by the blood of the cross of the son of his love. I use that phrase on purpose because the person spoken of in Colossians 1.20, his cross, goes all the way back to Colossians 1.12, the son of his love, God's son, the son of his love. Begotten in eternity, not in time, of God's own essence, out of God's own essence of love, the Son of God. The cross, therefore, is the cross of the Son of God's love. He made peace by the blood of the cross of the Son of God's love. So the peace isn't because we're justified. The peace is because God made the peace through the blood, which is another way of saying through the death, which is another way of saying through the climax of his obedience, his faithful obedience or his faithfulness. And so we have peace with God because God made that peace by the blood of Christ's cross. Being justified by that blood, he says bluntly, right down the road, we're going to see it in Romans 5, 9. Therefore, being justified by his blood. So, is it by, his, by our faith or his blood that we're justified? There's, there's a controversy there if you want to make it both, because it's not both. It's either you are justified by his blood or justified by your faith. And it isn't your faith anyways, Romans 5.1. It's his faithfulness. We are justified by his faithfulness, which is the same as saying justified by his blood because his faithfulness took him to a place where he died for our sins in obedience to the Father. That's why I say, in a much wider range of view, in a much longer and wider horizon, I see it a little differently. We have peace with God, and being justified by Christ's blood, let us now enjoy the peace that was secured for us. Again, if the subjunctive mood is intended, and I like the fact that A.T. Robertson, one of my go-to guys, even though I argue with him about 30% of the time. He insists that it has to be subjunctive. The other opportunity only comes from Textus Receptus, which is, has its problems. If the subjunctive mood is intended by the apostle in Romans 5.1, as A.T. Robertson insists that it is, then the whole character of the epistolary document, we call Romans for short, takes on a hortatory tone and on top of that, the sharp distinction between what is called positional and experiential truth breaks down. But even if the indicative was intended, the sense of an exhortation is still evident. Now, consider how we got 
peace with God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did we get peace with God? We got it with the whole world when God was in Christ reconciling or making peace with the world. God reconciled the world. The world needed to be reconciled to God, not God to the world. God was always for us. He's always for his creation. The cross was a great big no to sin and a great big yes to his creation. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a no to the identity of mankind under sin. That's what that whole thing about is when he, the Son of Man comes and sits upon his throne and says, Depart from me, I never knew you. That is the, the throne is the cross. And the idea is the divine no to all of us whom the Lord never knows. He never knew us as people under sin. He will not accept our identity as people under sin. And so the goats is what God said no to. And that's all humanity under sin. And the sheep is all the people of his pasture, all his people. Linda, you know this one, Psalm 100. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The cross is the glorious throne of the Son of Man in which he said, no, depart from me forever. Humanity whose identity is derived from being under sin. And enter into the joy of the Lord, humanity as I know you, as a new creation. I don't know you under sin. That man is God. That woman is God. It isn't the Lord saying, I never knew you, which would have been a lie anyways. He means I never recognized you. I never gave you validity under sin. I never recognized your identity under sin. So I became sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in me. That isn't a last judgment thing where God condemns half the human race and saves the other half. That is another one of those bifurcations of humanity into the saved and the damned so that the preacher and all who follow the preacher can be on the winning side and have their little triumphalist religion which is the same among Christians as Muslims when you get into a triumphalist bifurcation of humanity. It's the same thing. It's a dishonor to Christ. The same people will say, God punished Jesus because he was mad at us. And so we, we regarded him as a man afflicted by God. He's not a man afflicted by God. He is God being afflicted by man on the cross. That's like saying he's accursed. He became a curse for us, but it doesn't say he became cursed by God. He became a curse of the law. The law hijacked by sin had a curse. And Jesus became the curse of the law hijacked by sin in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. 
And so that we would receive the blessing of Abraham and the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit who evokes faith. That's a lot more to that, obviously. But consider how we got peace with God. How did we get it? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. If that's not enough for you, or if that's too much, Romans 5.10 more sharply stated, when we were enemies, we were reconciled. That's called peace. We were reconciled to God through his son's death. On top of this, the scripture says in Psalm 85, 8, Yahweh will speak peace to his people, is the prediction of the Psalms. Who is Yahweh? The same one who, risen from the dead, comes to his disciples and says, peace. Peace. Why could he say, because he is our peace. They had, he had peace with them and they with him because of what he just accomplished in his death and resurrection. Yahweh will speak peace to his people. Now Yahweh has spoken peace to his people. God has spoken peace to his people with one word, and the word is Yeshua. John twenty nineteen. John 20. 21, John 20, 26, peace, peace, peace. Jesus spoke peace to his disciples after his resurrection. The peace that he declared to them was theirs. Thomas was in the room. He didn't believe. Jesus said, peace. Peace is yours through what I just accomplished, not by your believing. Jesus didn't say, now you believe, so now you have peace. He started off with peace. By his death, we're justified. And by his resurrection, that very justification consists of sharing his own life, his very own life. That's why it's called the justification of life. In Romans 5.18, I'll say that again. By his death, we're justified. And by his resurrection, that justification consists of the sharing of his very life. What was wrong? We were dead in sins. How do you make it right? He made us alive. So what is justification other than the making of us alive who were dead? How do you set right someone whose problem is that they're dead? You make them alive. So justification is a justification unto life. That's where Ephesians goes, incidentally. But God who is in his great love or in his, he is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us. While we were dead in sins, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you were saved. Being justified 
Let us enjoy the peace with God that was achieved by God in Christ. Get it? That's where our peace is. Being justified. Let us enjoy the peace with God that we have that was achieved by God in Christ in the Christ event. If we enjoy this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, through our Lord Jesus Christ, it says there, if we enjoy this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, then we will enjoy it together and with each other. Paul's always after breaking down of walls in honor of his Savior, who broke down the middle wall of partition, did away with the enmity in the body of his flesh through death. Romans 5.2. Through whom, who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we also have access into this grace in which we stand. And let us boastfully exult, E-X-U-L-T. Exult means triumphantly (laughs) rejoice. More than rejoice, more than boast, triumphantly boast. In the presence or at the prospect of the hope of the glory of God. Remember all the way back in Romans 3.27, the teacher asked the question, well, where is boasting then? There's got to be some boasting somewhere. Paul says, here it is. Let's boast. Let's boastfully, triumphantly exult at the prospect of the hope of the glory of God. Or we could even say in the presence of the hope of the glory of God because Jesus Christ is the hope of the glory of God, and he's present. Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. Christ in you, who? The hope of glory. Colossians one twenty seven. Now, Robertson considers this famous word, kalkaomai, which we've studied over and over again. Remember Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Kalkaamai to be subjunctive again and volative. Volative is V-O-L-I-T-I-V-E. And it means it's related to the liberated will. We have a liberated will now. Here's where boasting is. So where's Waldo? If Waldo is boasting, Waldo's right here. If it's boasting. If that's the case, then there is a double exhortation in 5, 1, and 2. Paul hits us with a double exhortation or an encouragement, an impartation of incentive, kind of a command. It's double. Let's keep on enjoying peace with God, and let's keep on boasting in the hope of the glory of God. Peace is what was secured by God. The glory of God is what we will experience in toto, in its totality, at the parousia. So in a sense, peace is as a result of what's behind us. And hope is a result of what's in front of us. 
But it's all what God does, what God has done. Our confident assurance looking back and our confident assurance looking forward is all due to God's grace. A sphere in which we permanently stand. If you're going to preach this message, you're going to experience two things. The pleasure of God and the displeasure of men. And the profound displeasure of principalities and powers. Who will stir up people that you were thought you were in your distant past. They come into your present. To scream and holler. Romans 5, 3. Beyond that, remember that whole year going beyond, going beyond? We're still going beyond. When I stop going beyond, you'll know it. Because I'll be dead. I will have earned my urn. Beyond that, let us also boast in our troubles. Wait a minute. Kalkaomai again, he's got double boasts here. Let us also boast in our troubles. Now, let's listen to where, where this has come from. Romans 2, 9 the word thlipsis is used, trouble. And the teacher said this. Here's where trouble comes from. Trouble is what God afflicts people with who are evildoers. Picture Job's friends all around him. Well, Job, you went through a lot of things here, and obviously you've done something wrong. God's afflicting you. You see, they, his friends, some of them, not all of them, assumed that he was a man afflicted by God because he's suffering. And this teacher's gospel says, well, God afflicts people. And so if you've got affliction, you're an evildoer. I knew it. They stopped coming to church and look at what they got now. Look at that disease. God's afflicted them because they don't come to church anymore. You ever think that? I hope not. Beyond that, let us also boast in our troubles, slipsons, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. There's no, there's no, you can, there's a million ways you can say this, but I'm just going to say it the way it, it has to be said. Tribulation produces perseverance. It's a good thing then, isn't it? It makes soldiers. It might even make, I'm not going to get into gender stuff, but it might make a man into a man instead of a whining beta male, a snowflake. It produces perseverance. Trouble makes soldiers. And so you might go through a trouble that you went through before and kind of fell apart, but that now you go through the same trouble and it really is no trouble at all. 
You don't see the heat when it comes. And so sometimes you get different kinds of troubles that you can't handle. And But it's making you into someone that looks an awful lot like Jesus. The perseverance of Jesus. Tribulation is inevitable in this world. Why? Because we live in the clashing juncture of the ages. More on this will be coming down the road. Jesus told us that. He told us that. In the world, in this cosmos, you will have thlipsis. But be of good cheer. And that's all Paul's saying. If you got thlipsis, be of good cheer. So he also assured us that he's overcome the world in John sixteen thirty three. Tribulation is not what God pays back evildoers with. In fact, his kindness tends to lead people to repentance, I think it says in Romans 2, 4. Hmm. When you write your book, Pastor Brown, put that in the hmm. Things that make you. Perseverance it produces. Tribulation is the blessing by which God produces and showcases the trait of perseverance. Which is the perseverance of none other than Jesus. Which is a characteristic of those who reign in life by one Jesus Christ in Romans 5.17. This is a triple exhortation for the saints to enjoy the fruits of reconciliation with God. I'll say that again. This is a triple exhortation for the saints to enjoy the fruits. An exhortation to me is it's not yelling at people. It's not even really so much encouragement as it is imparting incentive. Powerful incentive. A triple incentivization for the saints to enjoy the fruits of reconciliation with God And to boastfully exult, triumphantly exult in the hope of the glory of God and in trouble as the means of the production of soldiers. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, Paul writes to Timothy. Be inured to difficulties. What do you think? It's not going to be difficult. You think it's going to be easy? The change of the ages is occurring. The juncture and the clash of the evil age, the evil age and the age of Messiah clashing. Better buck up, better toughen up, but it's only by grace that we are and that we do. And so, Thlipsis is defined by Freiburg as literally pressure, pressing together figuratively in the New Testament, of suffering brought on by outward circumstances, also called affliction, oppression, and trouble. The UBS, or the United Bible Society lexicon, says simply hard circumstances. Lunita, trouble involving direct suffering, is what Thlipsis is. In Acts 11.19, I went there for a little help. The word thlipsis is used, and it's a persecution. It was at the time of Stephen the deacon's death. There was a time of great persecution, so much so 
the people of God were scattered. They couldn't live anymore in their communities. They had to live somewhere else. It wasn't evacuation because of Hurricane Florence. It was evacuation and moving into other parts of the world because of severe persecution. In Acts 11.19. In Acts 14.22, Paul and Barnabas actually taught the disciples in Antioch and Syria on a follow-up trip that, quote, 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 the essence of their teaching. It is necessary to pass through many troubles, ellipses, on our way into the kingdom of God. And Paul taught this. Guess when he taught this? Guess when the circumstances of that were taught? In 1419, Paul had just been stoned, dragged out of a city, and left for dead. They thought he was dead, so they just left him out there. Unfortunately for the persecutors, he was surrounded by a bunch of brethren, and he stood up and said, let's go on. Keep plugging. Moreover, Paul, speaking at the conference of elders in Ephesus much later on, told his audience in Acts twenty twenty three, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and thlipsis, trouble, awaits me in every city. Acts twenty twenty three. So the word thlipsis has come up before, once again, in the teacher. In Romans 2, 9, he states unequivocally that trouble is what God pays back to every human being who does evil. And so here's a yet another reason for divisions. If there's people influenced by this teacher... They're going to see certain believers afflicted with certain sufferings and say, they're evildoers, and therefore, what have you got? Self-righteous divisions again. The wrong idea about human suffering. So if this argument is held, then those who are not suffering in this life would naturally look at sufferers as those who have been afflicted by God as a retribution or punishment from God. Now, if you held that view, then you would have to invent something like a prosperity gospel. Oh, wait a minute. It's already been done and is being done. But more than that, We would have to look at sufferers as those who have been afflicted by God as a retribution or a punishment from God. Hmm. Jesus himself, and this is most important of all, was wrongly considered as afflicted by God. We looked at him, we regarded him, and concluded wrongly about him that he was a man afflicted by God. That's not who he was. You see, these days of awe, we're approaching Yom Kippur, the atonement, getting close. I even wrote a 10 stanza poem called A Poem for the Ten Days of Awe. I won't afflict you with it unless you insist. Then copies can be purchased at the tape table. Now, now, 
It's actually not so good. It's kind of, it starts off kind of childish, childish, and ends up kind of childlike and awe. So it's, it's not bad. So we regarded him as punished, stricken, and afflicted by God. We regarded him as punished, stricken, and afflicted. But what about this days of awe? What happens in the days of awe? Repentance. We wrongly viewed him that way. If we see Jesus as suffering a penal substitution, we got it wrong. But then he realized this prophet, this genius, this theological genius named Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah, he realized that it was for our, he said, it was for our complicity with sin that he was punished. Listen carefully. Here we get near the heart of the atonement. These are days of awe. Punished here does not mean that God punished Jesus for our sins. Why? Because the triune God suffered in the Christ event. Just as the man Christ Jesus suffered inconceivably. But the punishment, as it's called here, was not afflicted on him by God. Rather, God in Christ was being crushed under the steamroller of sin itself, experiencing with what the younger generation likes to call all the feels. When you say happy birthday and have all the feels. F-E-E-L-S. Christ experienced all the feels of the wages of sin. All the experience that could be had was experienced by him. But God the Father and God the Spirit suffered the death of the Son. Only the Son died, but God the Father and the Spirit suffered the death with the Son. Yes, with all the feels of it, all of the feelings of what that inconceivable suffering must have been. All the full and fatal effects of mankind's complicity with sin. Collusion with it, if you want. This is the cup that Jesus drank. This is the cup that Jesus drank. And he drank it not to the dregs. That means the dregs are the residue at the bottom. He drank it with the dregs. He drank it all. It was the cup of the death that is the wages of sin, the end result or harvest of sin's enslavement of the whole human race, not, listen carefully, 
we're approaching Yom Kippur. And I'm not going by the Jewish calendar, but I'm using it as an analogy this year. It is not God punishing, but God himself enduring the incomprehensible harvest of misery that sin leads to. This is Yom Kippur. This is the day of atonement which we approach with ten days of awe, which we regard with numberless days of worship and gratitude. We considered him, therefore, and wrongly, to be a man afflicted by God. But he was God afflicted by man and by man's sins. Anyone who says Jesus is cursed, meaning cursed by God, is not speaking by the Holy Spirit. Romans says 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3, Jesus is Lord is more like it. Jesus Christ as Lord became a curse, which is the curse of the sin hijacked law, so that we would be redeemed from the curse of the law, not the curse of God, the curse of the law, so that the blessing of Abraham would come to all the Gentiles in him, and so that they would receive the promised Holy Spirit by the Messiah's faithfulness. This Spirit is the Spirit who evokes faith. The cross in which we singularly boast and in which we glory is called the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the cross where our Lord died for us in place of us. He was in control as the Lord. He was deliberately dying for us, for our sins, in order to deliver us from this present evil age. The cross was not just some colossal mistake. Neither was it the exhibition of God punishing a man for the sins of others. The cross was the incomprehensible exhibition of God's invasive love for human beings and for his suffering creation. And that cross was the means for the redemption of humanity from the wages of sin and of creation from its crippling enslavement to sin's corruption. That's what the cross is. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, or the final paycheck that sin pays is an incomprehensible death. A death you can't wrap your brain around. Jesus endured that death in his endurance of the cross. Now listen very carefully to this part and we'll close soon. It is not that the crucifixion itself was that death. In other words, we say, I just can't imagine how it is to be nailed to a tree, beaten, stripped of the flesh of your back, and all, you know, and the, all the s- descriptions they have, and that's terrible. 
But it's not the crucifixion itself was that death that is the wages of all sin. But that that death by crucifixion best depicts to our eyes the kind of inconceivably horrific death that Christ endured for us. Call yourself a universalist if you want. Call yourself a follower of Christus Victor if you wish. Call yourself a teacher of the grace of God, but if you take away from the incomprehensibility of the suffering of Messiah and the death of Christ and the endurance of the cross by the triune God, you're not preaching the gospel. Get the universal horizon right, but miss the center. What have you got? Not much. The wages of sin is this death, a death that has been suffered by our Savior God and by the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is this death that Jesus died and that the triune God suffered for us. But the gift of God, now we can hear it with appreciation. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Question, who would have experienced these wages? Who would have experienced these wages? If not all in Adam. But who does receive this gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, if not all who once in Adam are now in Christ? So all of this gives a special character to your sufferings, to mine, to yours. We're not just to stoically gut out our difficulties. That's almost as bad as whining through them, gutting it out with stoic, stiff upper lip stuff. But we're not just to rejoice in them either. We're to glory in them as if they are our strength, our wisdom, and our wealth. I glory in infirmities, Paul said, persecutions, afflictions. What? You what in them? I glory in them as if they're my wealth, my wisdom. My strength. Because when I'm weak, then his grace is perfected in me. As we exult in the hope of the glory of God, so we glory in the tribulation through which we enter that glory. Even now. Oh, it'll be ours. Then, completely. But even now. Hours in suffering. You say, well, where's the pincer? Quickly, quickly, quickly. We started late, we'll end late. Romans 11. (laughs) 
I got to be somewhere. Yes, you do. Right here. Speaking of boasting and glorying and the glory of God, consider the climactic doxology beginning with Romans 11.32. Speaking of mercy, we're dealing with God's love on the left. We're dealing with God's mercy on the right. For God has shut up all human beings in disobedience in order to have mercy on them, on them all. Oh, the depth of the wealth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his judgments. How incomprehensible his ways of acting. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever become his advisor? Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all of the beings of the entire universe in all of its times. To him be the glory for all the ages. Amen. One of those unfathomable judgments that Paul's so excited about is God's justification of the ungodly in Romans 4.5 and 4.25 and 5.1. One of the incomprehensible ways in which God has acted was demonstrated in his reconciliation of the human race to himself by the blood of the cross of the son of his love while we were still his enemies. God's judgments are unfathomable precisely because they are salvific. They are saving acts of God. That's what makes them astonishing and unfathomable. They're as deep as God himself. This is the deepest theological lesson of tonight. These judgments of God are as deep as God himself is because just as God exists, he exists to save. As God exists, he exists for us. Ezekiel 36, 9, Behold, I am for you, Yahweh says, adding, and you shall be tilled and sown. Tilled and sown is explained down the road in Ezekiel 36, 26. Tilling involves removing stones from the furrows in the soil. I will take out of you the stony hearts. Tilled, and you'll be sown. I will plant in you. One of the words for give you a heart of flesh is to plant or set it like seeds in the furrow of the soil. I am for you, and you will be tilled and sown. I will remove from you the stony heart, which is the evil inclination, and I will put within you a new heart, a heart of flesh, the flesh of Messiah himself, the heart of Messiah himself. So the pincer continues, even the centers of Romans, as we push to the center of the centers and find the promised lamb. Thank you, Father. And we stand in awe before you. And we thank you for the privilege that we have, Father, in awe and in worship to present a sacrifice of substance to you, 